0: I just got to say how much um, I've been enjoying the the coffee bar and the foyer. Um, It's been really neat because, you know, I feel like in the past, as soon as the service was over, it just seemed like everyone vanished to the parking lot. And now it has really been neat just being able to have more time to hang out, have an excuse to kind of have more fellowship and hang out with people. So uh, I've been enjoying that. And I have to say on on a personal note, as the person bringing the message tonight, You guys look so much more awake and alert than the last time i spoke so i'm pretty optimistic that we're going to get through this message with no sleeping casualties so i'm I'm pretty excited about that Um, tonight i'm really excited to share with you uh, one part of the series uh, gospel-shaped worship Uh, for the first part of the series pastor chad talked about what is worship and he clearly explained that By simple definition, worship is to give worth or value to something. And he talked about how we can worship with our time, um, with our resources, with our lives, and how um, all our worship should be directed towards God because he alone is worthy of all our worship. And then last week, uh, John Leaf covered uh, session two, which was the foundation of worship. And John talked about how... The good news of Jesus Christ, the the gospel, is the foundation of our worship. Uh, It is the foundation of our worship because it allows us to believe in and understand who we are to worship. And even more than that, the gospel actually changes us and empowers us to even be able to worship him. Well, this evening, I'll be sharing about... um, worship in God's Word. And I'm really excited to share with you what the Lord's been uh, showing me through this study. But first, I want to show you a really quick video clip um, of Jared Wilson as he talks a little bit about this idea of worship in God's Word.
1: We learned in our last session that the gospel The good news of Jesus Christ's sinless life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection is the heart of Christianity, and therefore ought to be the central theme of our Christian lives. In the first session, we saw that all of life is worship, so we can see how the gospel is to be the foundation of all of our worship. But if we take a step back and look at this good news, we see that it doesn't just drop out of heaven all by itself. It comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself the incarnate Word of God and is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit-inspired written Word of God we call the Bible. The 66 books of the Bible, each of which is without error and therefore totally trustworthy, gives the context that we need in order to know what the gospel is, why we need it, how it works, and what we're to do with it. We can see this in the passage we read last week, where Paul says that the gospel is of first importance and tells us it has the power to convert us, to justify us, and to make us grow as believers. We also see another important phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. That phrase helps us to see that the gospel was not some work of spiritual improvisation on God's part. Rather, the gospel was part of God's plan all along. When Paul says the atoning work of Christ was in accordance with the Scriptures, he is referring to all of the prophecies in the Old Testament that revealed that the gospel of Jesus Christ came according to the plan of God, a plan he had determined to follow from before the world began. Jesus tells us this himself when he sidled up to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember the story? Luke tells us that their hearts burned within them as he revealed to them all the things about himself from the law and the prophets. Jesus was showing them how the Old Testament preaches himself, how he himself is the main point of the whole Bible. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we talk of that is separate from the Bible. It is the saving summation of all that the Bible reveals. The gospel comes from the Bible and finds its context its history, its theology, its implications in the Bible. So we must handle the Bible in a respectful and responsible way in order to do the greatest justice to the gospel. There are ways to handle the written Word of God that illuminate and adorn the gospel. And then there are ways to handle the written Word of God that obscure and tarnish the gospel. In our passage for this session, we see Paul highlighting this theme. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul quotes two prophets from the Old Testament, Joel and Isaiah. When Joel reports that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the Lord that Joel is referring to is Jesus Christ. And when Isaiah informs us that missionary feet are beautiful, he is referring to those who carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. The entire Bible helps us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ because the entire Bible builds up to, declares, or flows from that gospel. And in the middle of our passage, we also learn how the biblical message of the gospel finds its audience. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? There may not be a better summary of the purpose of preaching. Paul is utterly logical. People must call on Christ to be saved. They must hear about Christ to be able to call on him. We must preach Christ in order for people to hear about Him. It makes perfect sense. And yet today it is not uncommon to have preaching and teaching in churches that does not make the gospel clear and central, or that does not make the Bible the source and authority for its message. But the preaching of the gospel is not just for people who are unbelievers. It is for believers too, so that we can stand in it and grow by it and allow the gospel to shape every area of our lives. If Romans 10 verses 13 through 15 is one of the best summaries of gospel preaching, another verse in the book of Nehemiah may be the best summary of preaching in general. We read that they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So good Bible teaching is not just the declaration of the truths of the Bible to people but also the careful and helpful explanation of them that allows people to understand and respond to the message. Let's continue in Nehemiah 8, reading verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What we see here is a dynamic also present in Romans 10. It is a pattern of call and response. Paul says that when one calls upon Jesus, the response of Jesus is to save the person. But how does one come to call upon Jesus? The sinner's calling upon the name of the Lord is itself a response to the calling of the Lord upon the sinner. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? and how are they to hear without someone preaching? In order to establish the biblical pattern to worship of call and response, some churches will begin their worship service with a call to worship, which consists of a scripture reading, sometimes followed by the declaration, thus saith the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. This call is then followed by a congregational declaration of thanks be to God. This exchange is an acknowledgement that in worship we are responding to God's word. Worship is a response to God's initiative, to His summoning of us. We call upon God and cry out for God and make requests and prayer to God during our worship services. We don't call upon God to respond to us as though we were somehow summoning God to our meeting. He is summoning us to believe in Him, to obey Him, to follow Him. So worship services that best demonstrate the authority and sufficiency of the Bible will reflect the call and response dynamic throughout the time of the gathering. In Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12, we see that the people responded to the call heard in the preaching of God's word in two ways, conviction and joy. They experienced conviction for their sins, felt the holiness of God brought to bear on their unholiness. Like Isaiah responding to the revelation of the glory of God in the temple. They were undone. But then the preachers reminded them of the gospel. The response to the bad news was conviction. The response to the good news is celebration. In each instance, the people are responding to the revelation of the word of God in a way that suits the sense of the call. And in fact, the good news of salvation is experienced as very good only when the bad news of sin is understood as very bad. Paul captures the worshipful response to the good news in Romans 10 when he reflects on the missionary preaching. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Remarking on the beauty of the missionary is his way of delighting in the missional work of the gospel and in the gospel itself as we learned in our last session, gospel mission is an act of worship. So it makes sense that Paul's response to the call response dynamic of gospel preaching and gospel belief is to exclaim how beautiful. To believe in the gospel is an act of worship itself. When we believe in the gospel, we are ascribing ultimate worth and satisfaction to God in Christ. We repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, which is the way we say, I no longer trust the things of the world, the idols I used to believe in for satisfaction and fulfillment. Now I put my faith in Jesus. He alone will satisfy and fulfill me. He alone will save me from my sins, give me life abundant, and reconcile me eternally to God.
0: So, he talked a lot about the gospel being a biblical message, um, how the gospel comes from the Bible. He mentioned several things that relate to the gospel, uh, God's word, and worship. But one thing that I think is especially important to remember um, is a little phrase that he said. I, wanna, I just want to repeat that. Um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we talk of that is separate from the Bible. It is the saving summation of all the Bible reveals. The gospel comes from the Bible and finds its context, its history, its theology, its implications in the Bible. In essence, we know the gospel because we know the Bible. Um, And like John Leaf said last week, the foundation of our worship is the gospel. So another way of saying it would be The foundation of our worship is the Gospel. The foundation of the Gospel is the Bible, God's Word. And Jared talked a little bit about Christ being the center of the Bible and everything um, in it points to him. He went on to say how important it is to be preaching and teaching um, from the Bible since it communicates the revelation of the Gospel uh, which is from God's Word. Um, And this is the core of our our worship. Lastly, he closed by mentioning the the call and response that Scripture demands. And in order to have this call and response, again, there needs to be clear communication uh, from the Word of God. Well, tonight, I want to look a little more closely um, at how the Word of God leads us to worship. And we're going to look in our Bibles and um, look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, But before we start reading there, I want to give you guys a little bit of context um, to Nehemiah. You see, in the year 445 B.C., um, the, the king of Persia allowed his cupbearer, Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because they had been destroyed. So Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, and he and the Israelites rebuilt the walls. But Nehemiah also found that the Israelites had neglected God's word. So after the walls were rebuilt, all the people gathered around to hear Ezra, the priest, read from the book of the law. Now, the phrase that's translated in English, the book of the law or the book of the law of Moses, was originally in Hebrew, the word Torah, or you might be familiar with the Greek word, which is Pentateuch. Um, so when we read the book of the law of Moses or the book of the law in Nehemiah, um, just remember that it's referring to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that is the Torah. Um, And that's what they're referring to here in Nehemiah. These are the books of the Bible that show God as creator of all, that show man's sin and uh, separation from God. And they show time and time again God's judgment of sin, but his mercy towards those who are uh, have faith in him and they are the books that he gave uh, his where he gave his law showing again his righteous standard that sinful men cannot keep so let's read uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 1 through 12 um, before I do I just wanna warn you there's a fairly long list of names here and I tried as hard as I could to find the right pronunciation but like people are just all over the place with it. So one guy, he calls this, um, he pronounces it Shema, and the other guy, he calls the name Shema. Well, since Shema is something we eat in Michione, I'm just going with the other pronunciation of Shema, So, just because just to clarify that. So. so let's read verses 1 through 3 first. And verses 1 through 3 is kind of a summary, and then 4 through 12 kind of gets into more detail. So Nehemiah chapter 8, And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Okay, now starting in verse four, we're going to get into more, kind of going back, get into more detail of what happened. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Methathathah, Thiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Paddaiah, Mishael, uh, Melkijah, Hashem, Heshbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Odiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josab, Josabad, Ahanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The first thing that stands out to me when thinking about worship and God's word in this passage is just seeing the heart attitude that the Israelites had uh, towards God. Uh, They had a right attitude towards God. In verse six, um, even before Ezra begins to read from the word of God, Um, He blesses God, saying, the Lord, the great God. And all the people, um, well, and he was doing this, acknowledging the power and majesty of God, and and acknowledging his high position that he had over the, the Israelites. The people's response to Ezra's blessing shows that they had the same heart attitude, that they recognized God's greatness and his worthiness of all worship and praise. In verse 6, it says, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So, in essence, they were agreeing with Ezra's opening blessing, saying, Yes, that's right. Our God is great. He's amazing. He's worthy of all our worship. Their heart understanding of God's greatness and worthiness affected them Um, so much that they responded with their whole being, showing that God was worth their all. So before Ezra even started reading God's word, we can see that although the people of Israel had neglected God's word for a time um, in the past, they still had some understanding of God's greatness and had a right attitude towards God and his word. The second thing that stands out in the beginning of this passage is just seeing that the people of Israel were hungry for God's word and they respected it very highly they, they held God's word in such a high regard that it says in verse five they stood up um, for the reading of the word and then in verse seven it says that they remained in their places uh, the New English translation is even clear in their translation where it says here um, they were teaching the people of the law as the people remained standing. So you have to understand that traditionally, the Israelites would raise up, rise up and stand for when the Torah was being brought out to be read. And then they would also stand again when it was taken back to its place. But usually they would sit down um, while it was being read and listen. Where the Israelites in this instance so esteemed God's word that they didn't even sit down, they were, remained standing. Um, from early morning to midday. In verse 3, we see the people's desire to hear God's word. Um, In the New English translation, again, it says, all the people were eager to hear the book of the law. Now, to show you how amazing this is, you have to understand, in verse 2, it talks about it being the first day of the seventh month. Now, this is the first day of the seventh month would be like September 16th. And um, during that time of, and the sun rises around 6 o'clock in, in Israel um, at that time of year. And the temperature's around uh, high 80s, low 90s. So pretty hot. So you have to imagine that these people had to rise up before sunset in order to get there on time. And they sat there standing out in this type of heat, um, just listening to God's word. Uh, just wanting to hear God's desire um, uh, just with this desire to know God and just desiring to hear what He had communicated to them, this desire to hear from God to know Him should be the cry of our hearts as well. You know, when I read about the people of, of Israel listening to Ezra reading uh, the very words of God, I just it brings to mind the Psalm uh, Psalm 42, where the psalmist says, "As a deer pants for the flowing streams." So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. These verses perfectly um, show the heart attitude that we should have when we're approaching God's word. This psalm was written by the sons of Korah. Well, well, what was their focus in writing this? It, It wasn't a cry for knowledge or human understanding. This was a cry for a relationship. It was a cry of a soul searching for the living God, wanting to have that intimacy, that relationship with their creator. And this should be our cry as we approach God's word as well. But you know, sometimes we don't have that. Um, Sometimes when we're looking to God's word, our hearts aren't actually focused on knowing him. Sometimes we can study God's word and, and it doesn't bring us to the point of worship. And I think that this hunger to hear God's, uh, God's voice through his word that we see in Nehemiah's day and here in the Sons of Korah is so important because it's this heart attitude um, towards God and his word that result in true worship. If we don't ever have, um, have this desire to know God, you know, we can study God's word forever and yet not be drawn to worship him. One of the best examples of this is found actually with the Jewish uh, religious leaders in Jesus' time. In Matthew 15, Jesus uh, denounces their approach to the word. He says in verse 6, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then in verse 6b, um, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, When he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God is saying here that the religious leaders had missed the point. These Jewish religious leaders had devoted their lives to the study of God's word. But they had totally missed God's heart. They saw God's word as a simple legal manuscript um, that they were trying to follow rather than a relationship with a living God. God had reached out to Israel and communicated to them his desire to have this special relationship with them as a people, but instead they viewed it as only just a legal manuscript to be studied. They had taken uh, parts of his word and and made it into uh, man-made rules and traditions, uh, creating a guidebook of of steps of living um, to what they thought would be a more holy and successful life. But they had completely missed God's heart and his word and instead became so focused on these rules. And because of this, their worship and their service was uh, completely empty. They had lost... Um, they not only lost their understanding of what God's heart was for them, but they went so far as to not even recognize God when he was there in front of them in flesh and blood. They got so focused on God's law instead of his person that Christ said in, in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me, or they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have, come to my father's, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Their focus had gotten so far off that they would have accepted somebody who came in their own name who wasn't of God, but they wouldn't accept God himself. Now, we might not come to this point uh, that the religious leaders got to ourselves, but I have to ask you, how often do we do something similar? When we approach the Word of God, do we see it as as a conversation with Him, as a study into the life and actions of our great God so that we can know Him, understand His character and His heart better? Or do we see it as just a legal manuscript, a guidebook, simply trying to understand the ins and outs of the rules and principles that he gives so that our families and and communities can can keep the rules correctly. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying God's word doesn't have certain principles that he tells us to follow, he does. But what is the focus when we come to his word? Do we primarily approach God's word as uh, God's 10 steps for a better Christian life self-help book or do we approach it as as a message from our loving Heavenly Father our Creator and awesome God the means through which we can understand and love him more serving following and worship worshiping God are wonderful things that God has created us as believers to do but if our worship and service doesn't flow from our relationship with him and the knowledge of Him, we're on the same track to get to the place where the the, the Pharisees got. But when we study God's Word in order to better know Him and His heart, His Word will transform our lives and we'll not be able to help but praise Him and truly worship Him with all our, our words in our lives. So as we study God's Word, it's important that we have a correct understanding of God's greatness, and the place that, that his word should have in our lives. It's also important that we come to his word hungry for him, desiring to grow in our relationship with him, because this is where true worship begins. As we go on in the passage in Nehemiah, um, we can see what happen when, happens when the people are listening to God's word with this, uh, with this heart attitude. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 8 says, They read the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense, so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As Jared said in the movie, simply reading or hearing God's word is not where it ends. Uh, this revelation of God's word causes a response. And as what happened with, um, happened here in this text in Nehemiah, we see that the response here, um, they, were, they were responding to God's word. And one response that we see is conviction and sorrow, and then later on the other response we see is Joy. And I really think that there needs to be kind of a mix of both of these to come to the point of true worship because um, it's not until we realize our lost condition and, our, and, and, and have sorrow over our sin that we can come to the point of experiencing true joy when we think about God's goodness and mercy in our lives. Um, back in March, uh, my, my brother Craig spoke about how... Um, their experience, talked about their experience teaching the Korah people uh, through the Bible. And for those of you who aren't here, what happened among the Korah people and their reaction to the time that they were going through the Torah um, is the perfect example of what the, the Israelites were experiencing here as, we, uh, as they heard God's word in Nehemiah's day. As Ezra read through the Torah, they heard about Adam and Eve and how they had rebelled against God, and, and how man had been separated from him. Uh, they, they went on in Genesis, and, and they, they heard about mankind's continued rebellion against God and how God destroyed the earth with a flood. But then they also saw his grace and mercy in saving Noah, because Noah believed God. They, sa- they saw how... Um, God had delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And just like the Korah people, they went through the Torah and they came to the law. They heard all the laws of God um, that God had instituted, and they realized they weren't keeping them. And worse yet, they realized they couldn't keep them. This was the bad news of the gospel that John Leaf talked about last week that our sins have caused a broken relationship with God, and we're separated from him, incapable of pleasing him. And when the people were reminded of these truths of God's word, the knowledge of the sin caused them to weep. This should be our response to God's word. When, when we see God for who he really is, as he shows himself in his word, we will be overwhelmed um, by our own unholiness and unworthiness. We will have a response like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the Lord in all his glory and his holiness. And he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Isaiah's response came from a true revelation of identity. He truly understood his identity as a sinner separated from God. And then he truly understood God's identity as God, who is worthy of all worship and all praise. Our great God, by the very fact of who he is, not only invites us to worship, but demands it. You see, we cannot come to God... When, and see him in all his glory, and not worship him. Because when we see God in all his glory, like Isaiah does, we will recognize our own unworthiness and see how awesome he is and worthy of all praise. And this is the beginning of worship. But God's word doesn't only bring us uh, repentance and sorrow. In Nehemiah, we see the response that the, that the people had was also joy. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9 through 12, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way eat and drink, uh, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing, uh, that has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that declare it. That were declared to them. As the people were mourning and weeping, uh, Ezra and the Levites go to them and they say, "No, this is a this is to be a joyous day. Uh, this is a day for great rejoicing because you heard God's word and you understood it." And the people, um, and the people went away. Not only did they go away rejoicing, but their joy was contagious. They they shared their feast with others. If anyone wasn't able to have a party, it says here they they shared with them so that everyone was celebrating in God's goodness. When we are rejoicing in God's goodness and the truth of his word, it is going to be contagious like it was here in Nehemiah. Like Nehemiah told the people to do, we will want everyone to experience the joy that we have. And really, this, this sharing with others our joy in the Lord is really the ultimate expression of worship. As we respond to God's word and joy, we want to share God's goodness with others because we, we give him worth, we give him value, and we want them to also value him. Like John said uh, last week, the good news of the gospel is that even though we were sinners separated from Christ, uh, separated from God, that in his goodness, he had made a plan to reconcile us to himself. For the people in Nehemiah's day, the full understanding of the gospel message was something in the future. As they heard God's word read, they, they heard the promise in, in Genesis that, that uh, there would come somebody to um, crush Satan's head. They heard the promise of Abra- to Abraham that God would bless the whole world through his seed. They sent, certainly didn't understand exactly what this meant, But God had given them a hope of a Messiah. And they had seen God's goodness shown again and again throughout the Torah. So they were rejoicing in what they did know of God's goodness and and the hope that he promised. They rejoiced so much that they couldn't contain this joy. Well, unlike the Jews in um, Nehemiah's day, we have a full understanding of the gospel message. We know as God's word says in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21, that Mary would give birth uh, to a son and name him Jesus, as it says, because he would save his people from their sins. And we know that Christ came uh, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that says the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We know that he suffered and died and and rose again from the dead um, to unite us with God. This right here is the underlying theme of God's word. And this is the basis of a joyful response in true worship. Hearing about what Jesus has done for us is really amazing, but understanding who we are in Christ puts things in a whole new perspective. I mean, it's like in, in where, what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And get the response, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How awesome is it that we are God's people, that we can now know him, but the response to this amazing news, he says, you know, is joy. But don't miss this. Peter says the response to this joy is a desire to see him glorified and praised and worshipped um, by those around us. It's like Pastor Chad said last week. Um, worship means to give worth or value to something. Or, or two weeks ago. Um, worship means means to give worth or value to something. And how do we know what has worth to us, what we worship in a sense? Well, it's what we talk about. It's what we're passionate about. If through reading God's word, we understand who our amazing, awesome God really is um, and how relevant the gospel is in our lives and in the lives of those around us, Um, we won't be able to keep quiet about it. We will have to share about what he's done for us, about the joy that we have. It is our understanding of his worth that drives us to see him glorified and worshipped in the world around us. Just like with the people in Nehemiah's day, this response of overflowing joyful worship comes um, comes as we hear his word and begin to understand him more. And as we respond to his word with lies of worship, um, we will desire to see him worshiped with, uh, by those around us. You know, I really, I pray that this church here wouldn't get distracted or lose focus of what worship in God's word is all about. And that is, it's about God. The Bible gives us just a glimpse into heaven like Isaiah got. Just being able to see just a small peek into God's holiness, his awesomeness and power. The Bible is God's way of graciously allowing us to see his character as we see the way that he interacted with man throughout history. God's word is it's a mirror to, to reveal to us the filth and the scum of sin in our lives but it also shows us the complete cleansing, the, the reco- um, reconciliation and the hope that we receive in salvation. The Bible's core purpose is allowing us the opportunity to know our Creator, our Savior and our God, and to worship Him above all things. So as we go to the Scriptures, let our cry be, O oh Lord, to know you more let me understand myself yes my my failings my sin but oh god allow your holy spirit to reveal who you are to me that my eyes might truly see the almighty god and by seeing believing and and in believing um worshiping you with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind for you lord are worthy of all worship and praise let's pray dear heavenly father lord you are truly worthy worthy um we praise you lord for your word and for communicating to us Um, we praise you god that we can know you through your word that we can hear your voice that you are close to us lord and god we just pray that your name would be worshiped would be praised throughout this world and we just uh know it's going to take place we know that one day lord every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and god we just uh praise you for that and we wait for that day just pray these things in your name amen